Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer. So this is one of the first podcasts that I've ever done, right? And when I thought of the name Storytime, I didn't realize that a bunch of other people thought of the name Storytime. I didn't research the name. I just went with it. And I had the brilliant idea to make it Storytime Slayer because there's only one Storytime Slayer. So thank you so much for joining me. You can now find this podcast anywhere under the name Storytime Slayer, and it will be the first one that pops up. I'm so excited. All right, let's get started. We are going to discuss serial killer Jerry Brudos, who kidnapped, killed, and mutilated women in Oregon near Salem. See, he had developed a fetish for women's shoes as young as grade school, had a history of sexual violence as a teenager, and developed a hatred for all women that stemmed from the hatred he had for his mother. And all of that I will dive deep into. I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. Do not forget I have a Facebook page called Storytime Slayer. And I've been debating about starting a group. Anyway, okay, let's just jump into the story. Despite all the things wrong with Jerry, which we will get into, he grew up to seem fairly normal. He was just a typical family man. An electrician, he was married with two children, one girl and one boy. Darcy, his wife, was the only woman that Jerry ever loved. All other women he hated, especially his mom. He was a larger man. He stood at over six foot tall and about 220 pounds. And he was incredibly strong, but perceived as a gentle giant. Now, when I say Jerry was strong, I mean the man was known to be able to lift and move a like three to 400 pound refrigerator on his own. He could move car parts that were incredibly heavy on his own. And once he was even electrocuted by 480 volts and he didn't even need to be hospitalized. Most people would be seriously injured and some even die, but it was due to his large stature and incredible strength that he had no issues from the electricity volt. Unfortunately though, Jerry Brudos was not a gentle giant like everyone thought he was. He was not a loving and doting husband and father that he was perceived to be. He was a very complicated man with a complicated past, strangely obedient wife, and a fetish that became sadistic. He began murdering innocent women in his garage workshop, and after killing his victims, he would dress and undress them like dolls. He'd take pictures of his victims dead and dressed up and posed, and he would also engage in sex with their lifeless bodies. These activities could sometimes go on for days at a time. And yes, sometimes his family was home and he would even pause what he was doing to like go inside, have dinner, get ready for bed. Ugh. I read a book by Anne Rule about him. It's called Lust Killer, and I 10 out of 10 recommend it if you enjoy true crime or serial killer books. Obviously, nobody is paying me to say that, and Rule does not even know who I am, okay? And by the way, in the popular show Mindhunter, Jerry Brudos does make an appearance. He is the big guy who loves women's high-heeled shoes. If, you, if you've watched Mindhunter, if you haven't, it's a really good show. I think it's on Netflix. He's been coined as the Lust Killer or Salem Shoe Fetish Killer. So we're going to start with the killings how they caught him, and then for those that love a good deep dive on a serial killer, I will tell you everything strange 
and known that I found out about Jerry Brudos from start to end. All right, so let's do it. The first person Jerry killed was a pretty, slender, 19-year-old woman named Linda Slauson. See, she just moved to Aloha, Oregon, and she was going door-to-door selling encyclopedias, which she hated. It was a nightmare. The books were really heavy, hard to carry, and she just didn't enjoy the job. So January 26, 1968, she's on her way to a specific house. It was a lead that somebody gave her of a family interested in buying encyclopedias. And she was so desperately trying to sell encyclopedias. So unfortunately, though, it starts raining and she's on the right street, but she's not exactly sure which house it is. See, the address got smudged from the rain. So she keeps walking. She's debating about just throwing in the towel and going back to the bus when she sees a man outside and he smiles and he waves at her. So she's like, you know what? Maybe that's the guy. She goes up to him and she explains like, hey, I sell encyclopedias. I was told there was a family on this street interested. So Jerry just plays along like, yeah, she's at the right house and brings her inside. Now, his mom and his daughter were actually home upstairs And so he tells Linda, hey, let's go talk in my workshop. That way we don't get interrupted. And she readily agrees. They go downstairs into, it's kind of like a garage slash workshop. So when they say downstairs, I don't think it was a lot of steps. I need to look into that. So they made small talk and he acted like he was interested in the encyclopedias. Then he tells her, hold on, I'm going to turn on this lamp. And when she wasn't looking and her guard was down, instead of turning on a lamp, he grabbed a two by four and smacked her in the head with it. While unconscious but alive, he suffocated her. And Jerry said that he squeezed so hard and so long that he could feel her bones cracking. Because his mom and daughter were home, he decided to send them out for hamburgers. While they were gone, he fetched his collection of women's undergarments. See, Jerry had been stealing clothes from women's homes and off their clotheslines for years, which is something I'll dive into later. And he would spend hours dressing and undressing Linda's corpse like a doll. This was his first murder victim. Um, He did not engage in any sort of sex act with Linda, and he did not keep her body very long. When his wife got home, he pretended like he was working on a project and then came to bed as if nothing was wrong. But later that night, while his family was asleep, he actually went back to where Linda was. He played dress up some more with her corpse, even took pictures. And he wanted to keep her body really bad, but she couldn't fit into the deep freezer. And he didn't have any other way to store her. So he settled for cutting off her left foot, slipping a high heel on it, and storing that in his deep freezer. By the way, the deep freezer was kept in his workshop, and nobody was allowed in his workshop but him, not even his wife. And he rationalized no one was allowed in his workshop ever for two reasons. So one, he just flat out doesn't like being interrupted and it is easier not to bother him or he'll be a really big jerk about it. Plus two, he dabbled in photography development. So he had like one of those dark developing rooms And if you came in while he was developing photos, it could completely ruin his work. And to work around the issue, he had an intercom system because the deep freezer was in the workshop. If his wife needed any meat, she would have to intercom him what she needed and he would bring it up to her. Like she was not allowed to just walk on down there and see what meat was in there and grab what she wanted. Very weird, right? 
So that same night, at about 2 a.m., Jerry decided it was time to dispose of Linda's body. He tied an engine head, which is a car part, to her body and dumped her off of the St. John Bridge in the Williamette River in Portland, Oregon. See, he found the entire experience to be thrilling. He had fantasized about this for years and had no intention to stop. It just lit a fire under him. Unfortunately, Linda's missing person search fueled very little leads, and what happened to her remained a mystery until the ending, and we'll get to that. So Jerry was really prone to headaches. He'd always gotten debilitating headaches ever since he was a child. And with the holidays approaching in the fall of 1968, his head was pounding and he needed to get a fix. By a fix, he had the urge to kill again. So it is November 26, 1968, when Jan Susan Whitney was driving home along I-5. She was making a two-hour drive home for Thanksgiving, which was only two days away. But her car broke down. And that is when Jerry saw the beautiful 23-year-old college student and two hippie hitchhikers next to Jan's car. See, Jerry was driving home from work at the time, and he stopped and offered to help her with her vehicle, but said they'd have to go to his house to fetch his tools first. So Jan agrees her and the two hitchhikers get in Jerry's car, and the hitchhikers were headed north, so Jerry actually dropped them off at an on-ramp in Salem, And he and Jan continued to his home alone. And she was completely fine with that. She didn't seem at all hesitant to go with Jerry. I guess he just seemed really nice and friendly. Like he seemed like a nice guy. So they got to his house and they pulled into his garage. And he told Jan actually that she needed to wait in the car because he was going to run inside and tell his wife what was going on before they left. By the way... His wife was not even home, and she would not be home for hours. He knew that because he always made his wife give him a play-by-play of, like, what she was doing, where she was going, and she had to call and give Jerry a heads up when she was on her way home, especially if it deviated from whatever she told him she was going to do that day. So, Jerry tells Jan, oh, my wife's not home, and we're going to have to wait for her so I can go inside and get my tools. And Jan was completely unfazed and unsuspecting and was like, okay, we'll just wait for his wife. No problem. So then Jerry does something that was really weird to me. He gets into the back passenger seat of the car. So at this point, Jan's sitting in front of him in the front passenger seat. And he said to pass some time, he asked Jan to try to explain to him how to tie his shoe. But she can't look at him. And she can't use her hands to explain. She just has to explain verbally. And she went along with it and she starts explaining quickly like, you know, make a loop around your thumb, blah, blah, blah. But while she was talking, Jerry quickly looped a leather bag strap from a postal bag around her neck and pulled it hard around her throat. He then got out of the car and he put the end of the leather strap, which was still around Jan's neck, in the door of the of the back seat and shut it. He then ran inside and double checked that nobody was home, went back out to the garage, and Jan was dead and bent backward over the seat. Jerry flipped her body around, neck still bound by the leather strap, by the way, and he had sex with her body from behind. Unlike his first victim, Jerry did not quickly dispose of Jan. In fact, he had this hook in his workshop that was actually a mechanic pulley for working on vehicles. And he holstered Jan onto it. And he actually kept her corpse there for days. 
He'd had sex with her later that night again, and each day after work, he'd come home and have sex with her body and spend hours dressing and undressing her, posing her, taking pictures of her, just like with Linda. He wanted something to keep of her. Remember, Linda, he kept her left foot. He decided to cut off Jan's right breast. And his plan was he wanted to make a mold of it as sort of a keepsake, but he could never get the molding mixture right, he said. So something so shocking about this crime is that Jerry almost got caught by police. For Thanksgiving, he and his wife went out of town to visit family. And now, remember, he'd killed Jan two days before Thanksgiving. And every day he'd come home and have sex with her and dress her up and all that. And instead of disposing of her body before he went out of town to visit family on Thanksgiving, he decided that he was going to string her up on the hook and just leave her in his workshop locked it up, and left her there. While he was gone, a car actually spun out on their main road and ran into his garage workshop building, knocking a hole in the wall. And with Jerry's home being vacant for the holidays, the police didn't really know how to get a hold of him, so they just left their card there. If they had shown a light and looked through the hole, they could have possibly seen Jan's corp hanging in the workshop according to Jerry like that's how close he was to getting caught but they didn't when Jerry got home from Thanksgiving trip he was frantic and he quickly moved Jan's body to his pump house and phoned police who came out and just explained oh we just wanted to check on things a car spun out and hit your garage workshop they police took a little look around the workshop and then they left And with such a close call, Jerry decided it was time to dump Jan's corpse. And that night, he tied scrap iron to her so she'd be weighed down, and he dumped her in the Willamette River. See, much like with Linda, the heinous crime against Jan kept Jerry's headaches and impulses down for a while. But March 27, 1969, he was back at it. 19-year-old Karen Sprinkler was visiting her family in Salem. She was between college terms, so she was just home for a little break and the day that he kidnapped Karen she was supposed to meet her mother at noon for lunch and she parked on the rooftop of the Meyer and Frank parking garage which had no fear time limit so Jerry's driving around and he spots a woman that sparked his attention she had a mini skirt on and big nice high heels which he loved So he pulls into the third level parking garage and he walks around and spends forever looking for this woman in a miniskirt. When he can't find her, he ends up going back to his car and that's when he spots Karen. She was approaching the door leading from the parking garage to the store. And when she went to open the door, it's a little bit of a heavy door because it's an indoor outdoor barrier, you know. And when she went to go open this door, Jerry actually grabbed her shoulder. And he showed her a toy pistol that looked real and said that she needed to come with him. And if she did what he said and didn't scream, he wouldn't shoot her. Now, she obeyed. And no one was in the parking garage. Karen just kept telling Jerry that she would do whatever he wanted if he didn't shoot her. So she gets in the car complicitly and he drives to his house. He then pulls in and parks in the garage. He asks Karen if she'd ever had sex before and she tells him no. And she does mention that she was on her period, which he said was true because she had a tampon in before he raped her on the floor of his workshop. She did not resist him at all because she was so afraid of the gun. 
Next, he allowed her to use the restroom in his home, which I thought was really weird. It just doesn't seem like his typical MO. And then they go back out to the workshop where he dressed her up in what he wanted her to wear alive, and he took pictures of her. When he was done, he tied her hands around her back with a rope, and then he attached the rope around her neck, and then fastened the rope to a come-along. So a come-along is a hand winch, and Jerry pulls the rope onto his hook, the one that he was pulling the women up on in his garage workshop, and so now he is tightening the come-along, which is lifting Karen off the ground each time. He ultimately tightens it four times before she suffocates and dies. He had to go inside to spend some time with his family, but he later went out to the garage and had sex with her corpse. He ultimately cut off both of her breasts to make molds of them, and the molds came out a little bit better than the other ones had, but he said it still wasn't perfect. He couldn't get the formula right. Now, when Jerry was done with Karen, he redressed her in her own clothes But rather than using her own bra, Jerry used a much wider black bra and stuffed paper towels in in place of her breasts. Now, Jerry said he swapped out the bras and used paper towels because he'd removed her breasts and did not want her bleeding all over the car when he transported her lifeless body. Now, he did not keep Karen's lifeless body for days. That same night around 2 p.m., he actually tied a car cylinder around her body and he dropped her off the Long Tom River on the upstream side. Whoo! So now Jerry is wanting to act on his urges more frequently. There was about 10 months between Linda and Jan and four months between Jan and Carrie. But as early as April 21st, Jerry is cruising for another victim. So that is less than a month. Since he kidnapped Karen. So it's April 21st and Jerry stays home from work because he has a bitching headache and he decides he's going to go to the Portland State University parking garage to scout out his next victim. Now the woman he scouted was named Sharon Wood and she was having a shitty day. So for starters she had an ear infection and was adjusting to new contact lenses. When Jerry spotted her, she was leaving work to go meet with her soon-to-be ex-husband, but couldn't even find her car keys. That is sucks. She actually said that she dumped her purse out onto her desk before she left and couldn't find her keys, so she was going to use a spare key hidden in a magnetic box under her car. So she goes to the parking garage, and she can't even find her car anywhere. She then realizes that she's on the wrong level, and she turns around. Okay. Think about a parking garage, guys. So in the parking garage where she's at, there's a darker, more isolated side. And that is where you go to get to different levels. It's deeper in the parking garage. And on the other side, it's lighter and brighter and more populated because it's on the other side of the road. It's closer to the street. So being that Sharon is on the wrong level, she needs to turn toward the dark, isolated side and go back through the stairwell. But she instantly felt like someone was really close behind her. So she quickly out of instinct just turned and she starts walking towards the street entrance. She can't explain it, but instinct just told her not to go to the isolated dark area of the parking garage. After a couple paces, she feels a tap on her shoulder and the person tapping her was Jerry. With the same toy pistol he used on Karen, he promised Sharon he wouldn't shoot her if she didn't scream. But she did scream. In fact, she quickly screamed no. 
and Jerry moved quickly to put her in an arm lock around her neck, but she was kicking and screaming and trying to grab the gun from him. Panicking, Jerry tries to put his hand over her mouth, and she bites him really hard. She bites him so hard that she could taste his blood in her mouth, but she was so afraid that her mouth could not let go of his thumb. It had actually locked around it. So Jerry grabbed her by the hair and forced her to the ground. Thumbs still in her mouth, by the way. And he starts to bash her head into the ground because he is panicking and she's drawing attention and he needs to get away from her. She still is holding onto his thumb and fading in and out of consciousness. But then she saw a Volkswagen bug driving toward her And that is when she started to pass out and finally her jaw unclenched. Jerry took off running, but when he got a bit of distance between Sharon and himself, he started to walk calmly so that nobody would suspect anything, got in his car and left. Sharon made a police report, but it would be months before the connection was made that she escaped the serial killer, Jerry Brudos. Oh, talk about terrifying. So... With that not going well, the next day, April 22nd, Jerry decided he was going to try again. He was in Salem cruising for another victim when he saw a young schoolgirl, like 14 or 15, walking. And it was 1030 on a Tuesday morning. She was walking along the railroad tracks. Jerry went up to her and he tried to pretend it was really urgent. He was like, I need you to come with me. I won't hurt you. Okay. And he grabs her by her shoulder and he pulls her between two houses. He flashed her the toy pistol and promised that he wouldn't hurt her. She did not seem very scared at all of Jerry. In fact, she told him to let go and ended up running away from him when he was trying to lead her to her car. So she is running towards a woman who is outside doing yard work and Jerry panics and he books it to his car and he gets the hell out of Dodge. So two days back to back, he had unsuccessful kidnapping attempts. Despite having the close calls back to back, Jerry tried again third day in a row. And I hate to even say this, but third day's the charm, right? So on Wednesday, April 23rd, 1969, 22-year-old Linda Dawn Saley went to the Lloyd Center shopping mall. A clerk from the shop actually remembers her and that she left at about 5.15. And that was the last time that she was spotted. Jerry was parked at the Lloyd parking garage looking for another woman to abduct. Um, This time, Jerry tried a different method. He actually ditched the toy gun and got a fake police badge. So when he sees Linda at at the parking mall garage walking out, she has an arm full of of things that she bought and so he flashes his fake police badge and he said that she needed to go with him and he was taking her into custody for shoplifting. She said that she didn't steal anything but agreed to go with him downtown. It was an hour drive from the shopping center to his house and he got to his house he pulled into his garage and he told her to follow him. He was actually going inside of his house until right when he stepped inside through the threshold, he could see that his wife was home. With Linda in the garage following him into his house, he quickly motioned with his hand for her to stop and not come any further towards the door. Then he sees his wife and he tells her that he's got some important business to do in the shop and that she needed to stay in the house. And Jerry's wife always listened to her. So she said, okay, and she just told her husband that dinner was almost ready and went about her business. 
Now, Jerry had to put Linda on hold and go have dinner with his family. So he tied Linda up and went inside and actually like sat down and ate dinner. And he claims that when he came back out to the workshop, Linda was actually untied. So this is all according to Jerry Brutus, though, right? So nobody can argue or say otherwise. He used the same leather strap he'd used on Karen, and he wrapped it around the young woman's neck and picked her body up off the ground. But Linda was a fighter. She was actually an athlete, and she was in pretty good shape. She asked him why he was doing this, and he just pulled the leather strap tighter. She was scratching and fighting him, which really pissed him off. Now, when she went limp, he dropped her to the floor and he had sex with her corpse. He then strung her up by the same hook he had the others, and he wanted to do an electricity experiment on her body. So he poked Linda under the rib cage with the hypodermic needles on each side, and then he attached electric leads to these needles and then plugged them in. I think he was seeing if he could make her jolt or have a sudden movement, but it didn't work. It just burned her skin. Um, He ends up keeping Linda one day and one night, having sex with her corpse one more time. And during night two, he actually tied her body to a car park called an overdrive unit. And he dropped her body from the Long Tom River as well. So before any of the girls were found murdered, Linda's disappearance was so eerily similar to Jan Whitney and Karen Sprinkler that police began to think it was no coincidence Um, I mean, all three of their vehicles were found locked and undisturbed, and the women were just vanished, gone, nowhere to be found. So police are making a connection that they have someone bad on their hands, possibly. And that connection is verified Saturday, May 10th, 1969. That is when the body of Linda Salee had been discovered. And because the disappearance was possibly connected to other women, a full search of the area was conducted. And that following Monday, the body of Karen Sprinkler was found. Um, Whoever did this, it was immediately noted that they kept Karen's actual bra and replaced it with a much larger bra that was far too big for Karen. And this is one of those little pieces of evidence that they do not disclose to anybody And that will come into play later. Only the killer would have that information. So at this point, investigators are sure that they have a serial killer on their hands. They note a few signatures specific to whoever was doing this. For one, he was using car parts to weigh the victims down. He had tied specific and intricate knots in the rope. And he was using copper wire as well, which he twisted the same direction and snipped as an electrician would. So they came up with a possible composite of who they were looking for. And I got this information from the Anne rule book, Lust Killer. I paraphrased it, but I just want to share with you what their um, composite was because it's so eerily accurate. They believe they were looking for someone between the ages of 20 and 30, at least of average intelligence, likely an electrician, grew up in a broken home and hates mommy and probably all women. They believe that he probably had a behavior record of being antisocial, did not participate in any contact sports, could not maintain a steady job, and he was killing in some sort of weird cycle because all the women were disappearing specifically toward the ends of months. Um, Not the beginning, middle, they were all killed between like the 23rd and the 27th of the month. So 
this is really interesting and this is kind of where the universe aligns you know investigators decided a good place to start would be intensive questioning at the callahan hall and this is like the dormitory that carrie lived in when she disappeared so they think okay we're going to talk to all the people in callahan hall and see if we can make any any kind of connections so in the meantime, Jerry had read the newspaper article about the bodies, and he did not feel the least bit nervous. He decided he was going to regroup and find a new way to get women. After murdering Linda, Jerry quit scouting out women at parking garages. His new method of picking up chicks was to call college dorms, and he'd ask for a really common name. So names that were really common in 1969 were Lisa, Kimberly, Amy, Mary, Linda, and he would try this, and it usually got some woman on the phone. So whoever answered, he would be like, hey, I'm looking for Amy. And then whenever an Amy came on the phone, he would say, hey, a friend gave me your number and name and thought that, you know, I was wondering if you'd want to go out on a date with me. And sometimes the women would fall for it, and sometimes they would push too hard to find out who gave him their number or name, and he couldn't really – he couldn't get – convince them that he wasn't a weirdo but the suspicious ones blew him off a couple of women took the bait and agreed to have a coffee date but I only know of one that actually met with him so this was just a way so that he could prowl for young college girls until he found one that was like his type now remember Jerry loves a woman in heels especially tall pointy stiletto shoes patent leather was great he tried to make his wife wear them at all times, but she couldn't because she had back problems. He also had a thing for longer hair and just overall women who dressed and looked nice. Conventional beauty is what he was after. And that was what he was looking for when he was calling these dorms for blind dates, his next victim. Jerry called and he spoke with at least three or four women during his new scheme. Like I said, I only know of one that met up with him. And the way his new method overlapped with police's investigation is when they started questioning the girls in Karen's dorm, they thought it was strange that at least four women in that dorm had said a man was cold calling them for blind dates. And police had a hunch whoever was calling could be their serial killer. So like I said, one woman agreed to go on the blind date. And she said that the man who was calling for a blind date wasn't like, weird he didn't say anything like sexually explicit when she spoke on the phone he just told her he was really lonely and he wanted to meet for coffee with the young woman and on the phone she was like before she agreed to go out with him they were making small talk and she disclosed that she was studying psychology and you guys this is crazy jerry tells her hey i actually spent some time in the walter reed hospital when i was younger which that is a mental hospital nearby and um, I could tell you some of the new methods that they use there. So she takes the bait <laughs> and meets him for coffee. Like, wow, what a pickup line. Oh, you're studying psychology? Well, I was once institutionalized. Whatever. So he arrives to pick her up and she immediately took note that he was older than her. Like nearly 30, a little chunky, not very handsome at all, thinning hairline, freckles, he was tall, over six feet. His car was old and dirty with kids' clothes all over the back seat, and she was pretty suspicious that he was probably married. But she couldn't tell police what the make or model of his car was because it was dark. 
She said that they talked about normal stuff and the date wasn't really that weird other than he grabbed her shoulder at one point and told her to pretend to look sad. And she was like, no, I don't really have anything to be sad about. And he's like, well, what about the dead girls that they found in the river? Awkward. So she ends up making it home safe and sound. And the man told her that he'd call her in a couple days, but he never did. So this is basically all the information she divulges to investigators. Police thought for sure this could be their guy. And they told the woman that if he did by chance call her back, and they told all the women, like, if this man calls you, just agree to meet with him and then immediately phone us when and where the meeting is going to take place and we will go instead and scout this guy out. So the women wouldn't really go meet up with him a second time, but this way police could, like, kind of know when and where to find this guy. So... The woman who went on the first date with him tells investigators, yeah, sure, but I really don't think that he's going to call me back. But guess what? He called her back. So Sunday, May 25th, 1969, he calls and asks the woman if she'd be interested in grabbing a Coke and some conversation. And he tells her that he can be at her dorm in 15 minutes. Woo! She was extremely nervous. And she told him, you know, I need to wash my hair first. And that's going to take about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. He tries to get her to like bypass washing her hair, but ultimately agrees. Fine. Okay. He said that I'll be in the lobby when you're ready. So once she hangs up the phone, she immediately calls police who rush to the lobby and sit inconspicuously, like I guess looking at magazines and just like casually hanging out in this lobby, waiting for this loser to waltz through. And when he did, it was so obvious he was the guy they were looking for because he was big, he was frumpy, his clothes were all wrinkled, and he was just clearly out of place at this college campus. He was no young buck. So they wasted no time and they just got up and said hello and started asking him questions. They asked him who he was, what he was doing there, where he lived, where he was from. And to my surprise, Jerry Brutus like stayed really calm. And he actually gave them his name, his address, and he said he was in that neck of the woods just mowing a friend's yard who was actually on vacation. And you know what? That actually is true. That is what he was doing before he went over to the college. They thanked him for his time, and Jerry went home. So police then start looking really hard into Jerry. They start following him around. They discover he's an electrician. He actually was hospitalized at Walter Reed as a teenager for exhibiting sexual violence, which I will get to. And he lived or worked coincidentally close to each abduction site, never maintaining a job for a really long time. So they're telling him and they're building a possible case. On May 28th, they obtain enough probable cause to execute a search warrant on two of his vehicles that Jerry was known to drive. Now, they didn't get much in the way of the murdered women because Jerry had literally like hosed down the inside of these cars. They literally said the seats were damp when they looked at them. But they were able to connect him to the attempted abduction of the schoolgirl. Her name was Leanne Brumley. And remember, she was the girl that Jerry tried scaring with the toy gun, but she ran away to the woman in the front yard. So I think they were able to connect him just by eyewitnesses. And they get an arrest warrant for him for attempted assault with a deadly weapon. Jerry had a feeling, though, that the police were closing in on him. I think he realized they were following him around. And so that's obviously why he deep cleaned and hosed down the vehicles before they searched him. 
And so he decided before they could arrest him that he was going to take his family out of town for a weekend getaway. That's what he told his wife. His wife still has no clue what is going on. But before they could get out of town, Darcy was driving and the police pulled them over where Jerry was hiding in the back seat under a blanket. So it kind of makes me wonder if she knew he was going to get arrested and was letting him hide. I don't know. So he's arrested and he's taken into custody. And when his wife is like, oh, my God, what's going on, Jerry? Why are they arresting you? He tells his wife he's being arrested for carrying a concealed weapon when really he's arrested for the assault with a deadly weapon. Now, here's the thing. Police know this is their guy. This is the guy that is kidnapping, murdering, and doing brutal acts to these young women. And they can't prove it, but they're going to try and like fish it out of him while he's under arrest for the assault, right, with a deadly weapon. So they bring Jerry in just to talk with them. And he's playing a sort of cat-mouse game with them. Police, basically, it's crazy how it gets broken down. So police are like, they are totally up front that they think he has something to do with all the missing and murdered women. So police say... Hey, you know, there's certain things about the crime scene that we know, and that's how we know who our guy is. And they say, specifically, Jerry, some of the clothing's out of place. And Jerry just, like, lets it slip out like butter. He just said, y'all must be talking about the bra. Okay, now remember... Karen's bra had been replaced with a bra that did not belong to her, and that is something only her killer would know. It was not information spread across the force or the media. So Jerry ultimately just cracks, and he immediately starts confessing to everything. He told police he'd had a fetish for high-heeled shoes, and all of this started since he was a child and he evolved to love women's undergarments so he would sneak into women's homes sometimes while they were asleep he would steal their bras and panties he said one night though in 1967 a woman woke up and he choked her until she fell unconscious and then had sex with her Um, she woke up as he was finishing the sexual assault and grabbed three pairs of high heels and a bra he said he chose her because he liked the high heels she had on He followed her home, and he got in through her window when she fell asleep. From there, he outlined everything in chronological order for the police. It was June 2nd, 1969, when news hit that Jerry Brudos was now arrested on first-degree murder charges. Until he made the confessions that police didn't have probable cause for a warrant, but after they were able to tape off and search his entire house. In the attic of his home, they found 40 pairs of high-heeled shoes. 40 shoes. They found 15 bras and dozens of women's underwear and girdles. He kept the molds that he'd made of the women's breasts that he cut off, and one of the molds was actually just sitting on a really high shelf in his living room. Now, it wasn't visible, but a detective reached up and found it. What really sealed the deal for Jerry, though, is when they found his photos. See, he had a toolbox locked, and it was filled with all the photos that he'd taken of all four of his victims post. Most of the photos were taken post-mortem, and you could tell that they were in Jerry's workshop by the background. 
They also found some photos hidden around the house of Jerry wearing women's undergarments. But there was one picture that really stood out from the rest. See, it had fallen behind um, Jerry's workbench between the workbench and the wall. And it was just luck that investigators got it. But it was a photo Jerry had taken of one of his victims wearing a black slip hanging from the hook that he had in the middle of his workshop. And as grotesque and disturbing as this picture was, what made it stand out from the rest is that there was a mirror in the photo and Jerry had actually snapped his own face in this picture with the corpse. Jerry initially tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. I mean, he's obviously crazy, but to be legally insane, you have to prove because of mental illness, you were basically unaware that what you were doing was wrong at the time of the crime. And this is not the case with him. So Jerry ends up changing his plea to guilty because the evidence was so overwhelming and he did not want all the sordid details to be broadcasted. Plus in Oregon, the death penalty is outlawed, so he wasn't facing that. Ultimately, he pleads guilty and he's ordered three consecutive life sentences. With good behavior credits, he could actually face at minimum 36 years. Now, Jerry did die March 28th, 2006 of liver cancer, and he was the longest serving prisoner at the Oregon Department of Corrections. He'd been incarcerated for 37 years. As for Jerry's wife, Darcy, as soon as Jerry was arrested, she packed up some of their things for her and the kids, and she took off to go live with her family. At first, her and the children stayed with her parents, um, but it was better off if the children stayed with her parents she moved in with her cousin and got back on her feet now something really crazy happened that nobody saw coming jerry's wife darcy actually gets arrested for first degree murder because people believe that she was an accomplice i will cover that trial the outcome of it and everything there is to know about jerry brutos starting from his childhood and how his acts of violence progressed what he was like as a father and the dynamic between Darcy and Jerry throughout their marriage and some of the strange things that Jerry did to indicate something clearly wasn't right okay so I will drop the part two to this episode tomorrow I won't make you wait a long time thank you guys so much for listening to Storytime Slayer and I will talk to you soon bye <laughs>